Hi, I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Today, we listen to an encore of our conversation with Derek Black. I'm Amy Halpern Laugh. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Derek Black. Professor Black is a professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law. The focus of his current scholarship is the intersection of constitutional law and public education, particularly as it pertains to educational equality and fairness for disadvantaged students. His most recent book, published in 2020, was Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. Welcome, Derek. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Schoolhouse Burning is subtitled Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. Why did you choose that subtitle? Well, the idea is that the American project of, of reaching for democracy, at least the best ideas of its democracy, are intertwined with, with public education. And therefore, uh, attacks on public education are, are attacks on democracy itself. And, you know, we look at the last... 10 years in particular, what we see is a pretty consistent attack on our public schools, on the very idea of public schools. And I wanna alert folks to the idea that if we sacrifice our public schools, we, we are jeopardizing our continuing commitment to our highest ideas of democracy as well. Mm -hmm. Education isn't mentioned in the constitution but has been central to these battles over access and equity throughout our history. You point to the period of reconstruction after the Civil War, especially 1865 to 1870, as fundamental to our understanding of the role of government in education. Why is this period so critical? Well, you know, that, that period is critical because that is the time in which we go from a nation in which fewer than half uh, of the states guarantee access to public education in their state constitutions to a nation in which about 80 plus percent guarantee public education in their constitutions. And within a few more years, we're at 95%. So that, that's a transformational moment. It's also important because this doesn't happen by accident, this happens by congressional mandate. And you know, I'd also would note, you, know, you referenced the point that the word education doesn't appear in our constitution, but I, I dwell on this quite a bit in my book and say that we actually had a national federal commitment to public education before we even had a United States Constitution. Many of us, you know, think of the Constitution as being there at the nation's founding. That, that's not the case, right? At, at the beginning, we, we declare independence. And then once we win independence, we have the Articles of Confederation. So we were really operating as a loose net uh, group of partners or, or an ally, a league of friends, as they called it. And so the Continental Congress, prior to even moving to have a United States Constitution, they passed the Northwest Ordinance and it mandated that every new territory that wanted to be a state would guarantee education in those states and actually plotted out and required that schools be at the center of every single town and location in, in the remainder of all the lands that the United States held. Eric, what is the extent of the education that's provided or promised in most of these state constitutions? 
Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at them with modern eyes, you can you can read them real quickly and and miss a lot of good stuff. But some of them guarantee a high quality education. Some of them say state must provide a uniform education. Others might say adequate. A couple of words I, I would really focus on is the word uniform. Now, in today's world, uniform just seems like bureaucracy. But in a time of rurality and non-existent education, uniform access to education is quite a radical idea. So that word uniform is very important in my mind. But we also have, and this is one that even I had missed until more recently, that these southern state constitutions in particular have the phrase, a system of schools, quote, open to all. That open to all idea is quite radical because what it is really doing is emphasizing the idea of equal access for low-income kids and believe it or not, equal access for African-Americans. And in fact, that phrase in a few states was explicitly debated in terms of the question of school integration. Right? That if we have a constitution in 1868 in South Carolina that says the schools must be open to all, does that mean that white and black children have to be allowed to go to the same school in the state of South Carolina in 1868? And I can tell you that a constitutional convention delegate said, yes, yes, that's exactly what it means. And others said, well, the white kids might not show up if we do that. And they said, you know, look, th this is a model society we're building here. And if they don't show up, it's on them. But we're not going to compromise our ideas. And that phrase boggles the modern mind, right? I say, you, know, you think integration is the idea of, of the NAACP in the 1930s and 40s? No, that was the idea of the freedmen, uh, you know, a handful of months removed from slavery. And they put it in the South Carolina Constitution. They put it in the Louisiana Constitution, so on and so forth. So really, these are, these are quite progressive documents. Now, we have failed to live up to those documents more often than not. But nonetheless, the founding ideas there are, are quite incredible. Public schools are often seen as the means to reproduce existing social structures and are also pointed to as vehicles for social mobility. How do you see the interplay between these two views? Well, there is a huge tension here, right? You know, I, I talked just a moment ago about the idea of a constitutional phrase that would have brought slave holders' kids together with slaves' kids months removed from slavery. Now, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that there are a lot of people who would violently oppose that. And you don't have to be a genius to figure out that once those people became the political ruling class again in the South, that they would do it through political means. And so, but that doesn't change the Constitution. And that, that is the, the tension of America on so many different levels, is that we have these constitutional clauses with ideas that are better than we as individuals quite often are, right? And so... We have segregated schools and unequal schools uh, following those amendments at times. You know, I often, and I quoted in the book, that Abraham Lincoln gave a, a speech during the primaries or during the first election when he was talking about the fact that 
our forefathers, when they wrote the Declaration of Independence and other things, that they knew good and well that people were still held in slavery at that moment in time. And they knew good and well when they wrote the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution that guaranteed equal protection that when folks woke up the next day, they wouldn't have equality in America, but that they put these ideas there for us so that at some point in the future, men and women could call back on these ideas and demand that we be better, right? And so they really are, they really are aspirations, but aspirations that have the force of law if we have the stomach to commit and fight for them in the real world. You've written about equity in school funding as one of the, the demands of the civil rights movement. How can we achieve that? Well, unfortunately, the Supreme Court is a, is a big piece of this puzzle. It's not the only piece, but it's a big one. And, and we had a, a Supreme Court that was committed to enforcing the Constitution and, and equity and, and things of that nature for a period of time. But then we had a president or a man who ran for president, you know, Richard Nixon, who made it his mission to reshape the United States Supreme Court and put members on there that would reverse that legacy. And that's exactly what they did. And we've been living with the legacy of, quite honestly, you know, Richard Nixon for quite some time now. I fear that, that we could have a new legacy of the most recent president that we live with for quite a long time. And, and so all that's to simply say that the federal courts are not necessarily the place where we're gonna find that equity now. On the other hand, our state Supreme Courts, which are, which is surprising to a lot of folks, have been quite receptive to a lot of these claims. There's, you know, there's new litigation happening constantly and new victories happening constantly in, in the state courts. In fact, you know, New York recently got a positive decision uh, out of its court of appeals. And so, we have these victories. It's one state at a time. But even once you win the courthouse, right, then you have to get a legislature to, to pass new legislation. So that really means grassroots people not believing that simply because it's written in a constitution or written in a court decision that it will happen, but that rather they call their political leaders to account for and hold them accountable for what's in the constitution and what's what's in the court decisions. So that that is ultimately it is, it is a public information campaign, it's a litigation campaign and it is a, a legislative campaign to make equity happen and then it's a people thing. You know, I think that's the one of the things that gets forgotten by folks in DC and state capitals which is, you know, and of course you guys know particularly on this podcast that that learning happens between human beings happens between one man or woman standing or even going outside those terms, an individual standing in front of the classroom and creating a safe space for kids to learn. So all the good intentions and all the good laws in the world will not produce good education unless we've got, to use your terms, or ethical persons in front of the classroom, trying to do the best by our children. You were just talking in terms of court decisions, for example, saying what must happen, that there must be equality or equal funding or whatever. Do you have particular thoughts on logistical methods of that you've looked at, whether it's doing this through additional targeted state funding? I know Ed Build was proposing 
moving the property tax bases from the local school districts to a broader basis, maybe countywide in some situations. Are there things you've seen that could be implemented if there were the political will that would have some of this effect? Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the general principle is that the more schools are funded locally, the more likely they are to be unequal. At the same time, I, I think it's wrong for anyone to think there's only one policy way to get there. I would say that the general solution to that is, again, number one, for states to take more responsibility. But sometimes we use that word equal. Equal isn't equal. What we really need are, are students with the highest needs getting the most resources. So we have to have progressive funding systems whereby predominantly low-income schools get anywhere from 40 to 80 percent more than, than other schools. And the tricky thing about, I don't want to get too, too wonky here, but the tricky thing about school funding is that nearly no matter what percentage of school funding the state is responsible for, the real question is how much is the state going to make up for the variations that are created based upon that local amount. So even if it's only 10%, right? Well, local groups can, some local groups might say, well, we'll do 15 or we'll do 20. So you, as long as there is a substantial local responsibility, there is capacity to create inequality unless the state is counterbalancing it. So we have to have a commitment to 40% or more for each low-income kid. And we have to have a commitment that the state will counterbalance locally created inequalities because there is at the end of the day, a competition for teachers. Now, how do we get there? And this goes to my point about there is no one way. I wrote a paper about two years ago that was called Abandoning the Federal Role in Education. I wasn't advocating for it. I was describing the status quo of the Every Student Succeeds Act, which basically handed over an enormous amount of authority to the states or relinquished it back to them and they did whatever they wanted to. In that paper, at the end, though, I call for the feds to quadruple their current level of funding for low-income students. You know, the feds only pick up about 10% of education now, and even my quadrupling wouldn't lead them to 40. It would just focus them on the low-income kids. I think that dollar amount would move us to about $80 billion a year for, or $60 billion a year for low-income kids. Senator Warren picked up that idea and put it in her presidential campaign policy platform. And the key, as, as I said, and that, and she picked it up, is not necessarily the precise amount of money that the feds give to the states, but rather the conditions for that, right? The federal government has been giving out money to states since the 60s for education or substantial amounts, but they've never conditioned that money on equitable results. And one of the reasons is they've never given states enough money for states to say, yeah, that, that's a deal that I'll take. So what I calculated in that paper is that I think, you know, the, the overall cost of getting that additional funds for, for low-income kids is, I don't know, 120, 120. 50 billion, that if the feds would commit to covering half of that, that it actually could be a deal too good for the states to, to pass up. You give us half, we'll close the other half. And what I also say in that paper is that, and in those proposals, is that the feds should not precisely dictate how the states do that. They should only look at the outcome. 
You know, if you want to do it through local property taxes, fine. If you want to do it through state income taxes, fine. If you want to do it through lotteries, fine. On and on and on. The real question is, when you submit us data at the end of the year, we want to see that you're closing this funding gap. And I also likened it to Title IX, which is our sex equality statute, which with athletics didn't require that athletics be equal overnight because that just wasn't going to happen. What they did require was progress each year or there's other, some other mechanisms. But I also say, look, what we really ought to do is tie states to making a certain amount of equitable gap closing over the course of 10 years. And I do think that in a mere 10 years, which I mean, I understand there's a lot of kids going through, but then in 10 years, we could go from a situation in which low-income kids on average receive about $2,000 less per pupil than their peers to a situation when they are receiving more than that and up to the level in which they actually need. That, that would be transformational in 10 years for us to do that. Joe Biden has been moving the direction of those levels of funding, but there has been no conditions attached to them to achieve the results that I'm talking about. So shifting from what would be nice to see, such as increased funding and increased equity, to one of the other things that you talk about a lot in your book, what is the current landscape of voucher laws around the country? I don't know if it's a good term, but I've called this the voucher spring because this is the year when we have seen more voucher legislation than at any prior point in our history. The other irony is, is that Betsy DeVos is gone. I mean, in some respects, this voucher spring is the Republican Party trying to prove that it's Trumpier than other Republican Party members or that they're Trumpier than Democrats or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost just sort of like an ideological credential, right? How pro-voucher can I be? Because she really did, you know, typify in some respects really, really bad stuff. So see that legislation in, in lots of states. Um, we've seen it passing. And so it's been an enormous year. The only thing kind of slowing it down is the legislative calendar running out in June. You know, some of those may have sort of run out of time, but I, I suspect we'll see more of them taken up in the fall and in the next year as well. So, can, you, can you mention some specific examples of states? Yeah, I mean, Kentucky passed a, a huge new bill. West Virginia passed a, a big bill. Ohio passed uh, a big bill. Yeah, I think there's about 20 new voucher legislation this year, I think, which is actually a huge number when you think about it. Now, some of those are brand new programs and some of them are expansions of existing programs, but the voucher expansion also intersected with also the, the vilification and the, the COVID issues, right? Somehow or another that COVID was school's fault and schools with their job, et cetera, et cetera. And, and vouchers are the only thing we can do to punish or get kids out of these public schools. And so, again, there's a new political thread going on there with, with COVID. And hopefully that part of it will, will die away by the fall. Aren't many of these vouchers going to parochial schools? Well, that's the big issue, the big fight. You're exactly right as, as, as a factual matter that, yes, they are going to religious schools. The 
fight has been whether there should be some some limitation or at least regulation around that issue. The United States Supreme Court last spring held in Espinoza that if you were going to have a, a private tuition or voucher program, that you could not exclude schools from participating just because of their religious status. It left open the possibility that you could still restrict the money for what we call religious use, which is to say, look, if you're a religious school and you say you're going to do it just like a non-religious school in terms of teaching history, English, et cetera, fine, you can participate. But if what you're going to do is take this money and teach religious doctrine, well, then we're not going to allow that. That would be the principle that that many folks are fighting for. It's where the anti-vouchers crew would say, at the very least, we have to restrict this money being spent on religious instruction or, or goodness uh, forbid, on, on discrimination itself. Unfortunately, very few, if any, I should say if any in, in, in research, I'm not sure hardly any of these new voucher states actually prohibit discrimination in the schools receiving these funds. And as someone pointed out, there, there's a little bit of a, a demographic mismatch here, which is in the states that are most likely to impose anti-discrimination norms on vouchers, they're so anti-voucher that they won't pass a voucher bill at all. And so this becomes a non-issue. Whereas in states that are less likely to be concerned with anti-discrimination norms, well, they're actually the ones most likely to actually like vouchers. And so you have vouchers moving forward, largely without any restriction or regulation on them. What about charter schools? I mean, we've seen a proliferation of these charters, especially those operated by large charter school management organizations. What is their impact? Well, you know, the funding impact is is enormous because we have more and more students coming out of the traditional public school and going to the charter school system, and that reduces resources for, for public schools. Now, the charter school advocates would say, well, you've got fewer students to teach, therefore it's not not costing, maybe you're even saving money. And the point, uh, you know, that I always make is imagine an idyllic school system with one or two high schools and one or two middle schools and three or four elementary schools, and they lose 500 kids to a charter school. The electricity bill at each and every one of those schools are going to be the exact same, whether they do or don't have those 500 kids, they're going to run the same exact bus routes, go on and on down the list. The costs actually don't change very much at all. Cafeteria costs could, could change some, but but they stay pretty steady. So you now have a school that is tasked with doing relatively the same job, but has fewer resources. So there, there's a big impact. And, and to bring the voucher and charter school story together, We could see, if if the law doesn't work out in the way that I think it should, we could see another vast expansion of charter schools right around the corner because those folks who have led the charge to open up vouchers to religious schools are also now claiming that Supreme Court doctrine requires that states give charters to religious organizations as well. So a Catholic school currently charging tuition could just convert to a charter school and not change anything else other than that and, and, and receive public dollars. That would turn the school funding world upside down because of the number of new resources flowing out of the public school system. So we've got serious, serious challenges that have been around for about a decade and have only gotten worse over time. 
we've been talking about the proliferation of charter schools. Why has it taken so long over the past few decades for the voucher laws to become so widespread? I mean, they were originally proposed maybe in the 70s or so, but then they didn't really catch on that much until, as you're talking about now, there's this whole explosion. Well, the vouchers have a have a sordid history. You know, the, the first voucher programs uh, came into existence during the South's attempt to resist school integration. And the idea was, we'll just close the public schools, we'll give everyone a voucher, and then we'll have private white academies and private black academies. And so civil rights organizations and, and elders in, in, in the black community have a strong mental aversion, I think, for good reason to, to vouchers. And so that has limited their uh, uptake in communities of color. And the people pushing the vouchers have often made it under the argument that we want to give these vouchers out to help the most disadvantaged students, right? They're trying to use communities of color uh, as sort of a poster child of sorts. Well, the communities didn't want them uh, for, for the most part. And so that, that was one big issue. The other one was charter schools, you know, whatever critique one may or may not have, them, have of them, they have, you know, a lot of aspects of publicness to them, right? And so those have been popular in a lot of communities of color. And so if choice was, was what a family wanted in a, in a struggling school district, well, charters were offering that. And so the vouchers didn't really take off. The vouchers have, are now taking off really more around what we call freedom ideology, anti-government ideology, that that's what's really helped them take off. And also the claim that, that somehow or another that white individuals of religious faith are oppressed in the public school system and that they need freedom just like everyone else. And I think that has accelerated uh, you know, the uptake of them as well. You've said that today's battles over charters and vouchers are different from previous education battles because they're really undermining the very concept of public education as something that the government should be doing. Could you elaborate on that at all? Whatever great ideas, and there are plenty of great ideas in our, in our theory of public education across time, as, as I always like to point out, those great ideas were not immune to racism, right? And so we have seen attacks or sort of issues within the public school system, but the idea, you know, we go back to sort of Jim Crow segregation following Reconstruction, we go back to sort of the backlash against integration in the 1960s. Those aren't attacks on the idea of public education. Those are attacks on black and brown children. We don't want to go to school with those kids or we don't want to fund their education. We're fine with public education. We're just not okay with them. As, as people used to say with integration, our resistance to integration, it's not the bus, it's us that you have a problem with. So the problem wasn't with public education. It was with some of the children it was serving. And what has changed now is that it is an attack on public education itself. That in this sort of modern iteration, it's not, I mean, there's certainly a racial undercurrents motivating and, and motivating lots of individuals, but the public rhetoric and the public policy is actually asserting that public education as an idea is flawed, that government schools are wrong, that freedom 
of all individuals to go and pursue their own destiny in the private sector is where we need to move on. And so that that is an attack on the education of poor rural white children. That's an attack on the education of uh, students of color. To some extent, that, that's also an attack on suburban communities that diverse or not who who want to maintain a public system that bring, brings people together. So it is a wholesale attack in my mind on the idea of public education that's occurring to them. Well, isn't some of this libertarianism just thinly veiled selfishness? Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think there definitely, it depends on, yeah, I think it's a diverse constituent. So you, lay, you, you limit it to, to libertarianism. I think part of the libertarianism movement is, is naive ignorance, and some of it is selfishness, as you say. You know, some, some libertarians, particularly the, the ones like the Koch brothers that really fund these movements, believe that the public education system simply extracts wealth from, from rich people and sends it out to educate poor kids, and that that's wrong that we are stealing their property to educate other kids. And so that, that is selfishness. I think there's a good deal of ignorance there as well. I think our, you know, we have a lot of thinkers that say, look, you know, do you really want to be rich and live behind armed gates? Is that actually a better world for you? And, and I think that the Koch brothers of the world would probably say, no, I don't think they want to live behind, or hopefully they don't want to live, or hopefully there's not many of them that want to live behind armed gates. But somehow they think that the free market and individual motivation would somehow or another make public education better or education better overall if the government just got out of it. And there's no evidence of that in history. In fact, the public education system comes into existence because the private system is incapable of serving the many different needs of the students of this country. And it is incapable of producing quality public education opportunities in, in remote communities in the same way that remote airports struggled or closed, in the same way that the train doesn't run to all the places it once ran before once the government got out of mandating it. There's, there's simply no evidence in history that the private system could do that. But nonetheless, there, there are individuals who, who I think foolishly believe that, that it could. Well, it creates a pretty good caste system, doesn't it? And if we're attributing bad motives, which, which may be appropriate, it's just my southernness gets the best of me sometime. Yes, it, it, it could certainly be bad motives. And, and I do talk about this a little bit in, in my book. And, and so far as I say, look, privatization rates, whether through charters or vouchers or combined together, are highest in the places where there are higher percentages of uh, students of color. Privatization is not an issue in Montana. <laughs> privatization is not an issue in Nebraska. Those places have some of the lowest levels of privatization in the country. Privatization, and until this legislative session, had really never been a serious issue in the state of West Virginia. Now, they, there's some Trumpism going on there that I think has is, is, is moved them a little bit. But whereas, you know, you look at where African-American and Latino children live at, you know, it's off the charts. And it is because I think at, at, a, at a subconscious level, even if, not, even if not stated explicitly, that white wealthy individuals and maybe middle-income white individuals who perceive themselves to be wealthier than what they are don't want to pay for the education of anybody other than their own children. And I get the sense, in addition from some of what you said, that one of the underlying factors is to 
reduce the taxes of the very wealthy by because vouchers and charters generally get less funding than public schools. And therefore what you're doing is lowering the amount of taxpayer money that is going towards education. So in a sense, it's sort of the opposite of the struggle for more funds for public education. They're saying that if we switch the whole model that we're reducing the government footprint because we're reducing the amount of money that is allocated towards education. Am I understanding correctly? That's correct, but there's another, there's an insidious element of of what you're talking about. I think there's also just like fiscal conservatism, which is we just don't want to spend, we we don't like taxes, we don't want to spend money. And how can we reduce the education footprint? And, you know, we spend less per pupil on vouchers and, and charters than we do in public schools. And so it is a way of getting them outside the system. And I also would note, and I think relatively few people uh, appreciate a key premise of what you're, you're hitting on, John, which is that once you get a child off of your books, well, I should say in year one, you know, you move a kid from you know, public school to voucher or public school to charter, and, and maybe you incur a $2,000 per pupil savings or something like that from the state level. But that savings actually grows over time. Right? Because you're not obligated to increase the voucher benefit on a year-to-year basis. You're not obligated to change the contract with, that's what it is, with charter schools. You can hold those costs constant. So imagine a world, just for a moment, in which everyone had a voucher tomorrow and it was $5,000 a kid, which might, well, let's say it's 7000 which might be enough in some locations. People say, I want that deal. But then fast forward 10 years from now and your child's in high school and costs have gone up and, and now tuition's 10000 and the school says, well, we need you to make up the other 3000 to the to the family. And the family goes to the legislature and the legislature says, forget that, right? That's your responsibility. We've moved towards this libertarian system that Amy was describing earlier. Like, I mean, we're giving you a little bit of help here, but for education, that's the family's responsibility in the same way that it's, you know, it's your responsibility to feed yourself. So food stamps don't make ends meet. That's not our problem. And, and that is exactly what a voucher and potentially a charter system can begin to look like as opposed to a public system, which is voted on, which is constitutionalized and has all these norms. The state certainly cuts public education, but there are limits to what it can do in a public system, there are no limits to the race to the bottom in a private system. What was the significance of the Red for Ed teacher strikes in some of the more conservative states a few years ago? Well, I think that last phrase that you raised is maybe the most significant. You said in conservative states, and I've emphasized this in my book, that the grassroots movement to fully fund or refund or repair the cuts the public education, that movement didn't start in Massachusetts. It didn't start in, you know, New York or, or Oregon. It started in West Virginia with the coal miners' daughters, right? It then moved to Oklahoma, right? And I don't have a, a good adjective to put on there, but you know, then it moved there and it moved to Arizona, right? 50,000 people marched on the capital of Arizona. Well, actually, Kentucky happened in between that. 
And then it started coming back to places like South Carolina, the, the home place of the Confederacy, or the birth of the, you know, all bad things at, at one point in history. It comes back here, and, and I had the, the good fortune to attend that. It's actually one of the most exciting days outside of birth of my children and marriage to see what was the largest gathering of any sort of protest on the state steps of the Capitol here. So much so that it flowed over into downtown and they had to close traffic. So the significance is that things had gotten so bad that even in the reddest of red places, people weren't willing to take it anymore. But the other significance is, is that maybe red and blue don't really matter when we understand what public education does, right? The public education, and I talk about this a lot in my book, historically has always been a nonpartisan issue. That's not to say that Democrats and Republicans don't disagree. They disagree all the time, but no child left behind. Like it, you don't like it. 85% of Congress voted for it. Every Student Succeeds Act, like it, don't like it. 85% of Congress voted for it. During a period, right, this is the Obama presidency, when they couldn't agree on the time of day. If Obama said first letter of the alphabet is A, you know, the Republicans would have said, no, it's it's Z or W or U or V, right? 85% of Congress votes in, in, in favor of this. So I think the fact that these things took off in red states and places we didn't expect them sort of reaffirmed my notion of how fundamental the average person's commitment to the idea of public education is. Doesn't mean they're not infected with racism and other things at times, but that fundamental commitment there. So that was you know, very exciting. And it educated the public about how much had been cut out of out of the budgets and, and how far we needed to go. Unfortunately, you know, COVID interrupted that, but it, it really was an important moment in history. What's your response to a low-income parent of color who says she's choosing a charter school or a voucher because she can't wait? for her local public school to improve? What would you say? Yeah, I would say I can't I can't second guess that decision. Uh, he or she might say, wait a minute, I thought you just wrote a book that was railing on these things. And I think the thing I emphasize is that what I am really railing on are state legislators who refuse and have refused in some instances for as long as the history of these education clauses have existed, have refused to fully serve poor and minority students. And if a state refuses to, to provide an adequate and equal education, I am highly sympathetic to those families to do whatever they feel is necessary and best for, for their children. But my response is, is that a handful of individual choices and one-off, you know, options will not remedy the fundamental challenge of delivering equal and adequate education to all our children. And so we have to take that issue to, to our states and insist that they live up their obligations. So, um, you know, those families, unfortunately, are put in an untenable situation and, and they have to do what they think is best for them. And when you say we, what kind of movement or coalition are you envisioning to fight against these charter and voucher movements? Well, when I say we, I think about my most direct colleagues, but I also think that we have to understand that we to be much, much bigger, Amy. And, and that is to say that when the state refuses to fairly and fully fund 
adequate education. It's not just doing a disservice to students of color in, in, in New York City or you know Newark or wherever it may be. They're, they're doing a disservice to rural children, poor, white, or otherwise across the country. That the refusal to have an equitable school funding system, for the most part, only accrues to the benefit of a relatively upper middle income suburban school. Right? And everyone else is left to fend for themselves. And so when I say we, I think what I mean is that the high poverty, you know, student of color communities in some of our large cities have to understand that they have allies or need to establish allies with, with folks in, in other communities. Because with vouchers, for instance, that sort of make it concrete, the, the thing that I often say is, of course, our civil rights advocates in our urban centers are, are fighting them because they see the most immediate effects of this. But they they need to engage the rural communities who haven't seen a brick laid, a bus bought, or a fully staffed school in decades. And those communities, those rural communities, should be outraged that in their moment of need, that the state's number one priority is a one-off set of vouchers, right? And that fact, that dichotomy shows us that these individuals pushing vouchers and, and one-off charters really don't have the interest of the people, and I mean broadly speaking people, a, a, in their minds. They're serving a narrow ideological end that goes back to you know the comments that, that you and John have been raising about selfishness or lower taxes and, and other ulterior motives. Because I think when we see that larger system and how many people are disserved by it, we have to see that there's a lot of people getting the short end of the stick. Going back to this question about what kind of movement is needed and what kind of coalitions, you focused, of course, on funding issues. How do you see this fitting in with some of the other demands about what education should be about? What are going to be the combination of things that will motivate large numbers of people? Is it strictly funding or is it part of a broader set of questions? I think the funding one is actually the, the easiest one. You know, everybody likes money, right? <laughs> everybody wants more money for their schools. And, and I think building coalitions around that are not difficult if you understand the underlying facts and, and what's happening. But, but money is a necessary but insufficient condition for quality education. And, and I talk about this towards the end of my book that if we think about the ideas of public schools as bringing folks together, we're not talking about bringing folks together who are already together or already alike. We're talking about bringing diverse communities and dealing with difference and learning how to build a better society or better or, or good values in the microcosm of education. And that means right, racially diverse and socioeconomically diverse schools. And I'm on the National Coalition for School Diversity. I was one of the uh, original founding steering committee members of that group. And that's hard work, right? Convincing state legislators to, uh, to go to, to make our schools more diverse, encouraging communities to do that uh, is more difficult. But, you know, for all the steam that we may have lost on the sort of grassroots red for ed movement as a result of COVID, I think the nation has obviously got a heightened attention to, to issues of racial oppression and racial separation. And I think the, the percentage of people who are open to more integrated and diverse schools, I like to believe is actually a little bit bigger today than it was 
yesterday and the day before, that it is a growing and expanding movement. You know, how long will it continue to grow and expand? I, I don't know. What's the tipping point that we can do something? I don't know. I can tell you that last year, that National Coalition for School Diversity was intricately involved in a school diversity bill that did, in fact, pass the House, the United States House of Representatives last year. We expect it to pass again this year. And, you know, in the Senate it is an open question. But we are getting more leverage at the federal level as well. Thank you, Professor Derek Black of the University of South Carolina School of Law. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.